you've got a husband who will not get his shirts off of the floor. Or you've got a wife who refuses, no matter how many times you plead with her, to turn the light off when she leaves the room. Not bitter. You've got a mortgage that just won't quit. The bank expects a check every single month. You've got a dog that chews the gutters off of your house, and you really can't afford to replace them. And you get to a place in your life in which you give up on having a Hallmark movie. You get to the place in your life in which you'll just settle to never go on Dr. Phil, right? You get to the place in your life in which you kind of have to make some compromises in your dreams and some compromises in your expectations. But how do we get there? How do we arrive at the place in our life that we find ourselves in this morning? Our lives are largely a, a compilation of the decisions that we make and the relationships that we have and the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And what all of us understand that have lived long enough is we all understand is that there are certain moments in our life, there are certain moments of truth, certain certain defining moments, that it's in that moment that the decision will determine the trajectory of everything that happens after it. And it's like in those moments that everything that you are and everything that you've been doing has been building and preparing and positioning you for that one moment in history, that one moment in your life where you will decide what you will do and where you will go, and it will determine everything. Esther is in one of those moments this morning. Esther has arrived at the point in her life which every moment and every circumstance and every relationship has been building since the beginning of her life. Perhaps we could say even prior to. And it's this moment of truth, it's this defining moment that will determine everything for Esther and everything for the people of God. Now, if you remember where we left off last week, we left off by acknowledging that in that moment everything was at stake. That the wicked Haman with the authority of King Xerxes has issued a decree that throughout all of Persia, in fact all of the Jews are to be annihilated. They are to be annihilated on the 13th day of the 12th month. And so at stake is everything. At stake is every covenant that God has made with his people, every promise that he has given, every prophecy that his prophets have spoken. Is the God, is the God of Israel the God that will protect? Is the God of Israel the God that will come through? Is the God of Israel God at all? So if you have your Bibles, turn them with me today to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, stand with me as we read God's word together. This morning we're going to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to read the first three verses, and then we're going to stop and, and talk a little bit, and so I'm going to let you sit, and then I'm, we're going to kind of cover it in pieces. I won't make you stand up every single time, okay? We won't do our uh, aerobics this morning. All right, so in Esther chapter 4, let's read the first three verses together. It says, when Mordecai learned all that had been, he, all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. 
And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. When we come to chapter 4, Esther chapter 4 really opens a lot like a CNN news lead-in, doesn't it? It opens a lot like a CNN story in which we'll see a reporter, Anderson Cooper or someone else, describing the scenes of what's happening in a land far away. But I want you to imagine something with me this morning. I want you to imagine a scenario as though it were really happening. Imagine that ISIS, that it has learned that ISIS has developed technology, that it has developed weapons that are so advanced and so filled with stealth technology that they are utterly undetectable by any defense mechanism that we have, by any radar system that we have devised. And imagine that we learn that they have become nuclear capable and with the capability to do what we will never even see coming. Our CIA are convinced that an attack is imminent and they're convinced because ISIS has told us so. They have told us that because of the spilled blood of so many of their leaders at the hands of the pagan West, that they will avenge their deaths and they will bring destruction among all of us who so defiantly live against Islam. We refuse to bow down to Allah. We refuse to live according to Sharia law. And they are going to avenge it. And so our president has taken to every medium possible. And he has acknowledged that an attack is imminent and that it is beyond our ability to evacuate. There isn't enough time. And so essentially all he can say is may God have mercy on us. The CIA has confirmed that between the actual explosion itself, the impact of the warhead hitting, and the radiation that is to follow, that it will be 100% decimation. I want you to imagine the screams that you would hear. I want you to imagine the, the wailing that you would hear, the mourning that you would see. Imagine the conversations that people would be having. Imagine how tightly moms would be holding their children. Imagine how helpless dads would be to protect them or to deliver them. Imagine what our society would be experiencing when they come to the realization that there will be no one to be at their grave. In fact, there will be no grave at all. There will be no one to read their journal. There will be no one to remember them when they're gone. It will be as though none of us ever lived, as though none of us ever existed. We will have been wiped from the annals of history. This is the situation in which God's people find themselves in in Esther chapter 4. And it says that they are, are wailing and lamenting and, and weeping bitterly. That they are powerless to be delivered. They are powerless to resolve the situation when they find themselves in. And they know that it's coming. And they know that they can't stop it. Imagine how helpless. Imagine what grief. And so what I think we see in Esther chapter 4 is, es is the author of Esther using words from another place in Scripture. When we read in, in verse... Uh, 
in verse 3, it says, And there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. That phrase, fasting and weeping and lamenting in verse 3, is an exact copy of a phrase found in Joel chapter 2, in which the prophet of Joel is speaking, or God is speaking through the prophet of Joel. And God is speaking to the prophet of Joel to say this, that unless there is weeping, unless there is lamenting, unless there is mourning, the people of God will be decimated. But if you will repent, if you will turn from your sinfulness, if you will turn from your unfaithfulness, and you will turn your heart to the Lord, I will bring restoration to the land. I will bring revival to the land. Now remember that throughout the book of Esther, the author of Esther is telling us things without expressly telling us things. It is not coincidental that that he is taking these words from the prophet of Joel. No, I believe what the author of Esther is doing is foreshadowing for us that the people of God are on the edge of revival. That the people of God are in in the midst of repentance. That they would have understood the relationship between sin and consequences much better than we do. And they would have known that the only way that they might again taste the favor of God and taste the grace of God and taste the protection of God as their forefathers had done would be to repent and to return their hearts to him and to him alone. And so I think what we see is the people of God turning their hearts toward the Lord. Iron City, I want you to see something here. This is what revival always looks like. This is what revival always looks like. I hear lots of people calling for revival now. Rightfully so. Praise God. On the radio, if you turn on Christian radio, it's talking about revival. If you hear preachers talking, they're talking about revival. You see preachers going to other churches and they're preaching on revival. You, you hear Christians in the congregation talking and they're, they're dreaming and longing for revival. And how do we most often respond? We most often respond by lamenting the condition of our con- country. By lamenting the decisions being made by our leaders. By lamenting that it is not now as it once was. Lamenting the sinfulness and the the pagan nature of our culture. And I want you to hear me say that we should do that. We should be broken over a sinful country. But let me just say, prayer rallies are not how revival comes. Lamenting the decisions of political leaders and being afraid and scared of the liberal takeover is, is not how revival comes. Revival comes, brothers and sisters, when we get to the place that the people of God are at in Esther chapter 4. Revival comes not when we lament the sins of everybody else, but when we begin to grieve and to mourn and to wail and to weep over our own sin and our own sinfulness and our own forsakenness of the gospel. Revival will come in the church. Revival will come in this church only when we come to the grips with the severity of our own sin, with the costliness of our own sin. Only when we ourselves get on our faces before God and plead with Him for mercy and plead with Him for grace and plead with Him for forgiveness for our unfaithfulness. You see, the trouble in our country is not our elections. 
The trouble in our country is not the decisions of our politicians. The trouble in our country, the trouble in our community, is the weakness of the church. The weakness of the church. The unfaithfulness of the church. The, un, the, the, the cowardice of the church. Brothers and sisters, this morning, when was the last time you were grieved over your own sin? When was the last time that you repented of your unfaithfulness to the Lord? When was the last time that you were broken, that you so, so frivolously approached your relationship with God Almighty? When was the last time that you called out to him and pleaded with him for mercy and forgiveness? And I'm going to bet that was the last time in your life that you sensed sincerely the nearness of God and the revival of your heart. Iron City, I'm calling you to repentance. I'm calling you to humble yourself before the Lord. To call on his name. For the forgiveness of your sin and the grace and the mercy and the redemption that Christ Jesus has offered us through his cross. I'm calling you brothers and sisters to mourn your sinfulness and to grieve your sinfulness. That the Lord might again let us taste his favor and taste his grace in a way that is powerful and divine. This morning, Iron City, will you come face to face and confront the sinfulness in your own heart? Confront the materialism in your own heart. Confront how easily it is you find yourself wandering from the Lord. Let's continue to read. We'll pick up in verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction and that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. So as we continue, we see a, a, a scenario unfolding in front of us. Apparently within the harem of the king, Esther was oblivious to things that were taking place in the outside world. She seems to be completely unaware of why her people are grieving, why her cousin, guardian, Mordecai, is in mourning and lament. And so she sends word. And she sends him clothes that, that he might remove his sackcloth, that he might perhaps even assume his position in the king's court. But he refuses. 
And he sends back to Esther news of all that has come, asking Esther to go before the king and to intercede for her people, to plead with the king on behalf of her people. But Esther responds by saying, you don't understand Mordecai. I don't have the kind of access, I don't have the kind of influence that you think that I do. For someone to go to the king, for someone to approach the king that way is an act of suicide. For if I go to the king unannounced, if I go to the king uninvited, the king, unless by his grace some chance lowers the golden scepter, I will be dead on the spot. You see, when we read verse 8, we should see something about that. Let's read verse 8 again together. Verse 8 says, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go and explain it uh, and beg the king, to, uh, the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now, do you remember, does something strike you odd about verse 8? Remember what Mordecai says to Esther in chapter 2. In chapter 2, as Esther is being taken into the harem of the king for this, this bachelor Persia edition, to see who the next king might be, he instructs Esther to keep her identity confined, to keep her uh, identity hidden, that no one would know that she's a Jew. And apparently, Esther has done that to perfection. Apparently, Esther has followed that command to the T, and and no one in the king's harem, not even the king himself, knows that Esther, the the queen of King Xerxes, is in fact a Jew. But now what does Mordecai want her to do? Now Mordecai wants her to do the exact opposite. Now Mordecai wants her to go to the king to say that she is a Jew and to try to get him to spare the Jews because of her. Because perhaps he loves her and cares for her. And so Mordecai wanted her to deny her heritage. And now Mordecai wants her to go and to defend her heritage. Now in Mordecai, I don't know if this is self-preservation or if this is a true repentance of heart. The, The scriptures don't tell us. But what we can see and what we do know is that Esther, in this moment, is in the midst of a great identity crisis. You see, it's no no, uh, coincidence that in the book of Esther, she is the only one with two names. You have her Hebrew name, her her Jewish name, the, the name that identifies her as a child of Yahweh, as one of the covenant people of God, Hadassah. And then you have her Persian name, the the name that identifies her as the Persian queen of King Xerxes, Esther. And in this moment, what she must decide is who she is. She must decide whether or not she's Hadassah or Esther. Whether or not she's the queen of Persia or the child of Yahweh. She must decide to whom her allegiance is. She must decide if she wants the wealth of the world or the inheritance that comes to the covenant people of God. You can imagine how difficult such a circumstance would be for a young woman. Perhaps a late teenager by this point. You can imagine that she's in, the, in a place in which she is provided for and cared for and, and has everything that she's ever wanted and everything that she could ever need. She has prominence and influence. And perhaps she would have to give all of that up. All of that up so that she might go and identify herself as a Jew. Identify herself, in fact, as one that is, as, is under the wrath of the decree that Haman has issued. 
Not only that, she has to out herself and reveal to everyone that she has lived a life that is unfaithful, a life that in fact is a lie and a fraud. And any of you that have ever been in that situation know how impossibly difficult and how impossibly gut-wrenching it is to face such a thing. This morning, I wonder how many of you are facing a similar identity crisis. This morning, I wonder how many of you are living in the harem of this world, completely undetected as a child of God. I wonder how many of you this morning are pursuing worldliness rather than godliness. Brothers and sisters, you must choose this day whom you will serve. You must choose this day whether you want worldliness or godliness. Because worldliness and godliness are in two different directions. In fact, they are two different gods. You cannot be both worldly and godly at the same time. You cannot pursue the gods of the world, pursue the gods that are promised to you, and at the same time pursue the God that is made available to us in Christ. This morning you must choose who you will serve. This morning, you must decide who you will be. You must decide whose, in fact, you are. Who has your allegiance? Who has your heart? You must come face to face with the reality that you can't stay hidden at work. And you can't stay hidden at school. And you can't stay hidden at home. You can't have everything that you see around you. You're a sojourner here. You're a foreigner in this land. This is not your country. This is not your home. You are a resident of the kingdom of God. And this is all temporary. This is all strange. And one day you will get home. Brothers and sisters, this morning I'm calling on you. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day who will have your heart. Choose this day who you will follow. Choose this day what your family will do. Choose this day. What name you will be known by. Let us continue to read. Beginning in verse 12, we'll read to the end of the chapter. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything. As Esther had ordered him. So we see that the moment of truth is here. We see that, that now it is, it is decision time. Now is the defining moment of Esther's life. Remember Esther had replied to Mordecai and said, You don't understand. If I go to the king, the consequences will be grave. If I, if I go to the king, I will almost certainly perish. It is a suicide, a kamikaze mission for me to do so. But what does Mordecai do in response? Mordecai, you can almost sense, perhaps, uh, in my mind, it's a, it's a fatherly tone speaking to Esther. Saying, Esther, sweet Esther, you're only looking at one side of this thing. Yes, obedience. Yes, 
faithfulness will have great costs associated with this. Yes, perhaps you will even die. Yes, there is, it is going to be expensive and costly for you to go and to go before the king. But Esther, do you not see? Esther, do you not realize the cost of not going, the cost of disobedience, the cost of unfaithfulness are infinitely greater do you think that you will still live just because you don't go, Esther? No, certainly you and your father's house will die. Esther, do you think this is just about you? No, Esther, look around you. Think about the people from your childhood. Think about me. Think about your family. Think about your heritage. All of it gone. You see, I think what we have here is we have Mordecai teaching Esther something remarkably important for us. Is that, yes, faithfulness is costly. Obedience is costly. But unfaithfulness, disobedience, is always far more costly. It's always far more costly. It's not cheap to follow Jesus. It's not easy to follow Jesus. It's not easy to live out a life centered on the gospel, live out a life centered on the joys of God. It is not easy to live that life as one obeying the word and living according to the word. Oh, but brothers and sisters, do you not see that it is far more costly and far greater difficulty to live a life in a different way? Some of you can tell that story. Some of you know that story. That, and this is what Satan does, isn't it? Satan comes in, and, and what is Esther being? She's being short-sighted, isn't she? She's kind of in, in self-preservation mode, that mode that, that all of us go in when kind of our neck's on the line. And she's looking at all of just the, the immediate repercussions of what could happen if she goes before the king. And so what happens is her fear leads her to being short-sighted. Isn't that what Satan does to us? He scares us away from faithfulness. He scares us away from obedience. He reminds us of the costliness in the immediate. He reminds us the costliness in this temporal period of our lives. He, he shows us how expensive it's going to be to stand up for our faith or to do something great for our faith or to go out on faith. And he, he shows us, though we know God is calling us to do so. And what do we do? We cower down. We back away. But what Satan does not do when he shows you the costliness of your obedience is he does not show you the costliness of your disobedience. See, why are some of you not reading the Bible and praying with your families? You're afraid of the awkwardness. Why are some of you not standing up at school as, as one that follows the Lord, set apart by the way that you devote yourself to him? You're afraid of standing alone. You're afraid of costing yourself popularity. You're afraid of costing yourself friendships. Why do you not defend the faith when it comes up at work? Why do you jump in with the other guys at work that, that talk like trash about women? Why do you not stand out? It's because you're afraid. You're fearful of what your faithfulness will do. You're fearful of the repercussions that will come into your life. And you're becoming incredibly short-sighted. Why do you not go on mission? Why do you not go to Swaziland? Why do you not go to Salt Lake City? Why do you not go to Lots Creek? Why do you not share the gospel with those in your own home? You're afraid. 
You're afraid of how uncomfortable you might be. You're afraid that you won't have the right things to say. You're afraid of what the implications in your own life. You're in self-preservation mode and you're short-sighted. Brothers and sisters, have you considered the repercussions? Have you considered the implications of you being disobedient? Have you considered the cost of you being unfaithful? Yes, it's awkward to read the Bible in your family and pray with your family when you're not used to. But have you considered the repercussions of a child that leaves the faith? Yes, it's, it's uncomfortable to take a stand at school. But have you considered the repercussions of going the way of the, of the world? A way that the Bible says clearly in Matthew chapter 7 is the way to destruction and death and forever separation from the Lord. Yes, it's uncomfortable and it's terrifying to share the gospel. It's terrifying to go on mission. But have you not considered the torment of the people that will not know the Lord because of it? Have you not considered the torment of your husband having never received Christ? Have you not understood the torment of the people in Swaziland that have never heard the gospel? Have you not considered the, the orphans that will not be fed? Have you not considered the, the, dis, the consequences of your disobedience? We don't give because it's hard and we think of things that we have to do without, but we forget what others have to do without because we don't give. Oh, how Satan has deceived us. Oh, how the enemy has confused us. Oh, how he has convinced us that obedience is too costly. Brothers and sisters, Iron City Baptist Church, disobedience is too expensive. Raise up, stand up, choose this day whom you will serve. Some of you, the Lord has been calling you to teach for a long time. And you've just been afraid. Some of you, the Lord has been calling to the mission field a long time and you've just been afraid. For some of you, the Lord's been calling you to preach for a long time and you're just afraid. For some of you, the Lord has been calling you to adopt and you're just afraid. For some of you, the Lord has been calling you to give generously to people that you don't even know and you've just been afraid. This morning, let the fear of the consequences of disobedience propel you to give in the joy of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, will you obey him? When we come to verse 14, we are confronted with one of those most mysterious and complex truths of all the scriptures. We're confronted here with the, the sovereignty of God on one hand and the responsibility of man on the other, right? What, is, what does he say? He says, Esther, if you don't go then relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. In other words, Esther, this is your moment. You have been preparing for your, this moment. God has been positioning you into this moment. God has been uh, weaving together with the threads of providence all of the events of your life, orchestrating all of it to come to a head right now. Will you stand up for your people? Will you stand up for the Lord? But Esther, understand something. That just because you don't step up, just because you don't stand up, it doesn't mean there won't be consequences. It doesn't mean there won't be repercussions that exceed far beyond your household. But understand something, Esther. The will of the Lord will not be thwarted. The will of the Lord will not be stopped. His will, his protection, his covenants will be kept. So Esther, the decision here is what you're going to do. So on the one hand, we have the sovereign will of the Lord that cannot be stopped. That cannot be thwarted. 
On the other hand, we have the reality that God uses us. God uses his people. God uses flawed human beings at the accomplishment of his will for the glory of his name. So the question becomes, is if when we're disobedient, if we sin, if we make the decision to not do what is right, that somehow the will of God go undone, that somehow the will of God go uh, stopped or, or altered. No. No. What I want you to see this morning is that in Esther chapter 4, the question here is not whether or not the Jews will be delivered. The question here is not whether or not God's will will be done. The question here is, is Esther's role in it? The question here is, is will Esther make herself available to be used by the Lord for the deliverance of her people? And that's the question facing us. I believe that the Bible very clearly teaches that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the Lord is willing to use. The Lord is willing to use for the building of his kingdom, for the spreading of his fame to the ends of the earth. That God is willing to use anyone, regardless of their sin, regardless of their history, regardless of their weakness. God will use you. The question is, are you going to be obedient? Are you willing to be used? I wonder what would have happened had Esther not stood up. I wonder if Esther would have seen the results of her disobedience. I wonder if she would have come to have regretted the, the incredible God moment that she missed out on. Or if she would have never even known at all. And I wonder the same about us. I wonder how many God moments we've missed. I wonder how many times God desired to use us, that God was willing to use us to reach somebody that wasn't reached, to, to move out into our community so that his kingdom might be built, so that he might, we, we might experience his divine power and divine provision through the Holy Spirit in a way that is indescribable and incomprehensible. But we just were disobedient and unfaithful. And God accomplished his purposes, and God accomplished his will, but he did it without you. Brothers and sisters, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. It is no small thing that God wants. Hear that word. God wants to use you. God wants to use you. One more time. God wants to use you. Do you think God saved you just to sit? Do you think God saved you to do nothing? God saved you that you might be an integral part of his kingdom. God wants to use you, the God that, that spoke the universe into existence, the God that right now is holding all of it in place, the God that right now is decreeing his will that cannot be stopped and will not be stopped, wants to use you. Will you step up? I know you're afraid, but will you step up? I know it's costly, but will you step up? Will you answer the call this morning? Will you step up and be who the Lord is commanding you to be? The Lord is calling you to be. Will you do what the Lord is calling you to do this morning? God wants to use you. And so Mordecai looks at Esther and he says, Esther, do you think all of this is coincidence? Do you think all of this is by chance, really? 
Do you think it's by chance, Esther, that you, a Jewish woman, are the beloved queen of the king? Do you think this is accidental, Esther? Or could it not be, Esther, that the Lord has been in the background and, and with the threads of providence has been bringing all of this to be for such a time as this? Could it not be that God has been positioning you and preparing you and bringing you to this moment so that you might step up, so that he might use you in this remarkable way? Now maybe you would look at this and you would say, but wait a second. We've already talked about the fact that, that it was really kind of sinful and, and pagan the way that, that Esther became the queen. You have Mordecai who tells her to disassociate herself with Yahweh, disassociates herself with her Jewish heritage. Certainly sin, certainly rebellion. You have Esther who goes and, and, and appeases the perverse desires of a wicked king. Certainly sinful. Certainly unfaithful. So Cody, are you saying that God has been wanting evil to happen and desiring evil to happen so that somehow his will will be done? No, that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God is so sovereign and God is so glorious. And God is so omnipotent and God is so mighty that though he never loves sin, desires sin, wants sin, that he is so supreme over sin that he takes it and manipulates it for your good and for his glory. That God is so mighty and so powerful that he knows what's going to happen before it ever does happen and he knows how he's going to take that evil and manipulate that evil so that that evil is in fact not used for the harm of his people and the harm of his kingdom and the harm of his glory but instead for the benefit of his people and the benefit of his glory and the benefit of his kingdom. You see, it is only the Christian God it is only the sovereign God of the universe, the God that reigns from the throne in which he is sitting right now. That can take a disease meant to destroy your family, to rip it apart, and instead bring it back together. It is only the sovereign God of the universe that can sit on his throne and take the, the pregnancy, the teenage pregnancy outside of wedlock of a, of a young man and a young woman and use it to call that young man to salvation and then to preach the gospel. It is only the sovereign God of the universe that can take the death of a teenage girl or the death of a teenage brother and use it to bring dozens of people to salvation for his glory. It is only the sovereign God of the universe that sees the wicked intentions of Satan and instead uses them and manipulates them and recalibrates them so that they ultimately bring him glory. Brothers and sisters, do you feel the hope of that? Do you feel the hope of that? Every one of you have blown it. All of you. You've got sin in your life. You've got evil in your history. You've got wickedness in your heart. And yet God is so good, and God is so mighty, and God is so powerful, and God is so sovereign that he uses the worst moments of your life as the first line of your testimony. That God takes that evil in your life, he takes that sin in your life, 
And he uses that to bring you to a place in which you will finally receive him. In which you will finally call on his name. In which you will finally step up to a life of faithfulness. Finally step up to a life of obedience. Brothers and sisters, our God is a gracious God. He is filled with mercy and patience and loving kindness toward us. So that even the wickedness that we do, even the evil in our lives, are used for our good and his glory. Have you seen the picture in Esther chapter 4? Have you seen the picture? We have Esther, whom, the, whom Mordecai has went to and who is asking her to, to go and intercede for her people before the king. And yet she is weak and she is afraid and she is seemingly unwilling that she could perhaps die. And she can't even fix their biggest problem. She can't even fix the problem with their sin. She can't even give them forgiveness. All she can do is save them, possibly, maybe, from the wrath of a pagan king. Jesus is the greater Esther. Jesus is the greater Esther. The Esther that, that goes willingly, courageously before his king. That, that never wavers in his commitment to the will of the Father. That goes not thinking he might die, knowing that he would die for us. That he might intercede before us, before the great king, to solve our main issue, our main problem. The problem of our sin, that we might be reconciled with God. Brothers and sisters, Esther chapter 4 is meant to leave us longing for a greater Esther. Meant to leave us longing for a greater king. And we find it. We find him in Jesus. This morning, I believe the Lord is calling you to greater faithfulness. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever stage of your faith that you're in, I believe the Lord is calling you to something greater. I know you're afraid, and I know that perhaps at first you're unwilling, but this morning, would you put your yes on the table? Would you repent? Would you go before the Lord and wail over your sin and lament over your sin that revival might come in your own heart and thus in our church? Brothers and sisters, where is he calling you to go? What is he calling you to do? This morning, would you go? This morning, would you do it? Perhaps this morning it's been revealed to you that you've never truly trusted in the Lord Jesus as Savior. This morning, would you come to him? Would you come to the greater Esther, the one that intercedes before the king on your behalf? This morning, would you come to him? Whatever the Lord is doing in your life, this morning, would you come? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, forgive me, forgive us for the weariness of our hearts and the weariness of our faith and the weakness of our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for how short-sighted we so often become. Forgive us, Lord, for how easily we are intimidated away with the costliness of obedience, failing to see the costliness of our disobedience. God, this morning, would you forgive us? Would the Spirit break our hearts over our sin? Would the Spirit convict us of our unfaithfulness? This morning, would you do a work in us that doesn't stop? Hear our hearts, God. Move in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us this morning?